So someone came over to me recently. He said that he was involved in some sort of investment deal. And turns out that it was some level of Ponzi scheme. And he he tells me, this was maybe last week, he tells me, we got to do an episode on this. We got to get the guy's name out there. And are we speaking bad about somebody? There are many laws related to that. He goes, no, but you'd be protecting and saving so many others, assuming that what he's saying is true. It's probably good for ratings uh, on a podcast, good for more views and more clicks and more. Uh, usually there's there's a relationship between what's uh, most uh, sensational and what's most proper. And uh, it's an inverse relationship. Welcome to the newest episode of Kosher Money. We asked Rabbi Aryeh Leibowitz some really, really good questions, and he gave us answers, just like the question about the Ponzi scheme. Are you allowed to buy a big screen TV for the Super Bowl and then return it the day after? Hey, it's a seven-day return. Listen to what he said, and we went through a peek. We got a peek inside the mind of a rabbi who is fielding hundreds of questions every month Really interesting stuff. We went through interesting questions, but also the things he's seeing behind closed doors. Very interesting and a thoughtful conversation. Really enjoyed it. Enjoy. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Okay, we're here with Rabbi Leibowitz of North Woodmere which is conveniently where I live. And the Rav goes way back with my family, is that right? Yes. Your grandfather was my first grade Rebbe. Rebbe Ritterman. Rebbe Ritterman, I, yeah. I knew there was a connection. My brother mentioned it, but uh, Rebbe Ritterman, who taught in Taurus MS, was it yes. in Taurus MS? Taurus MS, yes. And he was there for over 40 years. And so. uh, I remember some of my earliest memories are of your grandfather and of how I reacted to his teaching. Meaning I would, my parents still talk about like when I was in first grade, I would put on like a whole skit, like a whole play of the Parsha. And, you know, I was so excited about the learning because that's, that's how your grandfather taught. It was unbelievable. Everything came alive. So yeah, we go way back. (laughs) Wild, wild. So we are here today to discuss questions in halacha within Jewish law as it relates to money. We could probably, I was going through the archives of the (laughs) classes you've given online, and without exaggeration, there are hundreds, hundreds of of questions. Does money come up a lot within the questions you're asked, or are people asking the questions in their head, but they're not actually verbalizing them to a rabbinical figure? Well, first of all, money comes up a lot in Judaism, meaning uh, you learned in yeshiva, and uh, you probably spent probably half of your yeshiva years learning about monetary issues. Talmudic law is full of monetary issues. The Shulchan Aruch, which is the code of Jewish law, has four sections. One full section of it is all about money, is Choshen Mishpat, which is all about monetary law. So we are trained to think in those terms. Where there's sometimes a disconnect is that people sometimes disconnect, I guess, what you would call the academy from real life meaning even people who spent years and years learning about Talmudic monetary law may not realize that it actually plays out in real life law, in real life, you know, a business and uh, the kinds of questions that come up. When people begin to become attuned to it, 
lots of questions, you know, pop into their mind and hopefully they have a rabbi to discuss it with. And, uh, you know, I give a lot of uh, shiurim, a lot of lectures. So I use those questions as the basis for a lot of what I talk about. Do you see a correlation in, in the businessmen, the entrepreneurs, people within finance that are asking questions as it relates to Jewish law and how successful they are, how put together they are? I think you find people who are just very disciplined and very regimented. And that's typically the personality type that will uh, more naturally gravitate toward making sure that they have all their ducks in a row and that they're doing everything properly. And you know, those are gonna be the kinds of people that will more naturally ask questions. We hope everybody asks questions and tries to make sure that they're doing things right. But in general, disciplined and regimented people, I think are successful in just about everything. They exercise more and they spend, they make sure to spend time with their family and they know when to, you know, how not to waste time and how to maximize each and every day. Uh, you know, some of the busiest people that I know are the people that attend Dafyomi Shir every morning and the people that, you know, somehow find time for, for everything. So the questions that people are asking you are, they people you know and have some sort of relationship with, or are you fielding questions? You'll wake up, check the email inbox, and it's someone from Argentina. Both. I have, thank God, I've been teaching for you know, over 20 years now. And um, so I have a lot of students from over the years. As you know, I'm the rabbi of a shul in North Woodmere, so we have a lot of friends there who have that kind of connection with that will naturally ask me their questions as their rabbi. Uh, but once you lecture a lot, you give a lot of shiurim, and people hear them, so it's a natural association. I Meaning, I, I often um, liken it to a storyteller, right? If you have someone like Rabbi Pesach Kron, who's a world famous storyteller, how does he have so many stories? And the answer, I think, is because he tells stories. So if you have a good story, your first call is to Rabbi Pesach Kron and say, "Oh, you got to hear this one." So people naturally come to him with stories. So I think people will naturally come to the, someone who's out there discussing halachic issues with halachic issues. I've also discovered that a lot of people don't have a relationship with a rabbi, and they feel that there's a relationship developing by listening online. I mean, I know that on the receiving end also. There, there are rabbis whose uh, shiurim and lectures, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to use the word shiurim, if uh, the listener- We'll put it in on the bottom. Okay. At this point, you can just go with shiurim. Yeah, okay, so there, there are rabbis whose uh, shiurim I listen to, who I uh, never had a personal connection with, but I feel like you know they're among my rebbeim, um, they're among my teachers, and I feel associated with them. So I see that on, on both ends. Yeah, when I was following the Mets super closely, used to call WFAN a lot, and, and I would call uh, Steve Summers, my radio Rebbe. You know, you, you, I've never met him, but you, you know, he, he took a, a liking to me, I took a liking to him, and you develop a Kesher just from the, with, without even video, just yeah. audio is a very powerful medium. Yeah. Uh, he was you know? a legend. <laughs> yeah, still is, still is. Is he still going? Yeah, I think he's still oh, going okay. occasionally, he pops on. So. What would you say? How many questions are you fielding a week? We'd love to make some news on this. You know, have you ever released the number? Are, are we talking about dozens? Could some weeks be hundreds of questions coming in? Truth is, I, I really have no idea because I just answer the questions that I can answer right away uh -huh. as they come in. And those that I can't answer right away, I look into them and try to answer them a bit later. But it's not about, I never track 
numbers. My Talmidim, my students this year, we're learning the laws of Kashos this year. We're learning Yeridea. And I, I have a WhatsApp group for the students in my in my shear. Every time a Yeridea Shaila comes up, every time a question of Kashos comes up, I just forward it to my shear group mm. just to get them used to. Ha- these are future rabbis. I teach, I should have, I guess, started with that. I teach uh, in Yeshiva University in the Smicha program. So I'm teaching the rabbis of the future. So they're going to need to know how to answer actual questions. So you could sit there studying a lot and not know like what actually comes up. So I just always forward those questions to, to the group. And I, I never, it never occurred to me how many just Hilchus Kashrus questions come in, but I don't, rarely a day goes by where I don't forward a Kashrus question to the group. That's just Kashrus, but that's not the majority of the questions. The majority of the questions are either monetary issues, overall ethical issues, holidays, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, of topics. And we'll get through through some of them. One of the biggest knocks and and the critique I get is that I never really introduce the guest, right? I, I just assume everyone knows the guest because I'm having the guest on and I go right into it. Normally, my first question is like, what's the secret to making money? And the person's <laughs> like, Who, who's talking? I have to look through the notes, but... Um, well, I'm certainly not the person to ask that question. Right. <laughs> Although I am a big fan of a lot of uh, a lot of what you're doing, I have to tell you. My wife said to me, "What are you going on a money pot? You don't know anything about money. Uh-huh. Don't go spewing your stuff about you shouldn't have too many credit cards and you shouldn't lease cars, buy cars." I'm like, I learned all of that from this <laughs> podcast. That's where I know it from. Yeah, halavaya. I I would learn as much as I hear in this room. I find that there's sometimes a gap between what I'm hearing over and over and over, and I'm still not a great budgeter. Um, but yeah, um, we, we try to tailor the questions and I hope we can do that today with um, the strengths. But I, I guess the question, one last question before we get into um, specific examples, if, if someone's listening and they don't have a cash with Rabbi Leibowitz, they never heard of Rabbi Leibowitz until now, or they've n- never grown accustomed to asking questions, it's scary sending that first question, right? You know, I have to sit down. I have to formulate a, a question. How do I? How do I? Do I call him a rav? Do I call him a rabbi? Like, I don't want to insult him. Okay, now my question is: Wait, there's different elements to the question. Am I? Am I going to leave something out and then be misled because he doesn't realize the nuances of the question? W- what's your guidance to somebody that's never asked a question, but you think that when they hear what you're about to say, may open their mind to start asking? That's a very important question. Now, when I used to teach in a high school, a local high school here, DRS for uh, a long time, 15, 16 years. I wanted to train the students to ask questions and to even just view the world through the prism of halacha, to be able to see that God has what to say about everything. God has what to say about what happens when the guy at 7-Eleven gives you extra change. God has what to say about everything that happened. If you're unsatisfied when you went to the tailor and you came back and it didn't fit right, what are your rights? What are you, what, you know, what, what are you entitled to? What are you not entitled to? God has what to say about everything. And he gave us a Torah, you know, to teach us what his opinion is about everything and what, you know, it's God's opinion is binding on us, obviously. So what I would do is the first 10 minutes of class each day, the first 10 minutes of shear, I would just do something I would call Shiloh of the day. Whatever the most interesting Shiloh I got that day was. And what I found was, and sometimes they were interesting. Sometimes I got interesting questions and sometimes they weren't, you know, sometimes it was a dairy spoon mixed a, uh, you know, it was used for chicken soup by accident, you know, very classic uh, run of the mill kinds of questions. What I found is 
come like November, December time, certainly by winter vacation, by yeshiva week time, my Talmudim started sending me questions all the time. Oh, Rebbe, I'm in a, you know, great adventure and this happened and what do I do? You know, what's the, because when you're primed to think that way, when you hear it and you're exposed to it, so it's just, you, you, it's like you get a new, a new set of glasses where you see the world through, through the halacha. So I think it's, it's helpful to do that. Meaning for someone who maybe never really related to halacha much before, to expose yourself to halacha shirum, to halacha questions. Um, you know, Shailu Chuvasvarim, there are books of questions and answers that, you know, real people ask. There are some very entertaining such books. Rabbi Zilberstein uh, writes probably the most entertaining of such books. I think that that's very helpful. I also would think not to be afraid, meaning uh, it's true when you're calling a Gadol Hadar, when you're speaking to a Torah giant, someone who's, you know, one of the senior uh, halachic minds of the generation, it's scary. When I would call Rav David Feinstein's Zuchronel of Racha, I would be very frightened before I would, I would call him and I would try to make sure that I have it exactly right, precise, um, even, even with people that I should be much more comfortable with, but if they're Torah giants, you know, thank God I have a wonderful connection with my own Rebbe of Shechter Shlita, who is one of the great Torah minds of our generation. I'm still terrified. I'm, I'm still, every time I, I ask a question, I think about it a thousand times, but then there are like lower level people that, you know, that you can use as intermediaries or as, you know, the first level, you know, the first line, like people like me, you know, or your local rabbi who you can feel very comfortable to ask and they're happy to get the questions. You know, a rabbi just texted me about an hour ago with a question that one of his congregants had asked him. And he said, you know, I'm so happy that this person is asking a question. I mean, it was a congregant who clearly was not uh, completely bought in to uh, full observance, but they're, they're comfortable asking a question. It made the rabbi so happy that they're asking a question. It's the rabbi's job to try to figure out the clarity of, I meaning if there's something missing, to sort of figure out what's missing in the question. So it's Rabbi's job to ask the follow-ups and to make sure that he has all the information. But don't worry, he's trained for that. Is there a component with certain questions about embarrassment or how the rabbi is going to judge me and that prevents them from asking the question? And what would your message be to somebody who is slightly embarrassed to share whatever message or question they have I would imagine the rabbi is not going to rip into them in a reply, but will actually be a, a conduit and, and help bridge the gap between the information they're seeking without judgment. Right. Uh, first of all, most rabbis, I think, are not the type of people that would immediately judge you based on a question that you've asked. I can't tell you how many times someone has asked what would qualify as an embarrassing question or uh, reveals some sort of flaw that maybe they would prefer not be revealed. And purely by the way you respond to the question, by how you take it in stride and don't get all flustered, oh my God, you did what? You know, uh, and you just, you know, deal with it and encourage people and give them chizuk, you know, give them a little bit of encouragement and strength. Uh, it can build a, a, a beautiful relationship just, just by how you react. Whether you give the right answer or not, hopefully you're giving the right answer also. But certainly it's it it is sometimes embarrassing for people to ask, similar to the way it's embarrassing for some people to go to a urologist or uh, you know, a kind of doctor that maybe is uh, you know, deals with more sensitive um issues. 
Now, the, the difference is you could choose a doctor that you don't sit next to in shul. You know, your rabbi typically um, is someone that you're going to see on a consistent basis and you're often in the same social circles. And for that reason, I think I do get a lot of questions from people either anonymously, people make up anonymous email addresses and, you know, send me questions, you know, I've done this, how do I do tshuva for it? Um, so I do get a lot of those kinds of anonymous uh, emails. Um, so that's something that people do. And sometimes I'll get questions from people who will say, I'm not really comfortable going to my own rabbi with this. And it becomes obvious in the question why they're not comfortable going to their own rabbi. One time I got a knock on my door on a Sunday afternoon and uh, I opened the door and there was a young man with two little children. And he said, I was just in the neighborhood. I just wanted to say hello. Who are you? He said, well, we've been talking for, for a while. He lives in a different community. He had some embarrassing questions, but through our conversations, he was comfortable enough to finally introduce himself. So yeah, it is, it, it's an issue and we got to try to get through it. We'll be right back to this week's episode, but first a message from the Donors Fund. I use it, okay? I signed up. Why? Because I want easy charity giving. Think about it like QuickBooks for your charity, right? You sign up, thedonorsfund.org slash kosher money. It's absolutely free. And from there, you're amazed. You log on, sleek mobile app, or if you're on a desktop, sleek desktop platform. It is phenomenal. You're able to hop around, look at all the different charities, 1.5 million. You can give it as easy as sending a Zelle. It's probably easier. You know when you have to add someone on Zelle, you have to clunkily add the information in. This is super. It's all there. Practically every charity you can think of. If it's not there, it's easy to add a charity. And at the end of the year, a single click, all your receipts in one place. There is so much more. I have a limited amount of time to share with you, probably about 13 things I want to share with you about the Donors Fund. I'm happy more and more people are signing up. It's the start of a new year. Charity giving should be easy, fun, and clean. It is phenomenal. The donorsfund.org slash kosher money. Link is in the show notes. Get started. I want to hear from you. What do you like about it? If you just signed up, tell me. If you're hesitant to sign up, tell me why. Hi at livinglachaim.com. I want to hear from you. Tell me your thoughts. Let's do this together. 2024, I give you a blessing, a bracha, that you should give the most charity you've ever given until now. And now back to this week's episode. In our back and forth prior to discuss what we wanted to converse about today, one question that came up in my mind was, do people unrealizingly try or encourage you to answer in a specific way? And what do they teach you? I've deemed it, I've called it PSAC school. What, what in the training and how you train your class, is that something that you discuss and how do you weave through that? Yeah, people definitely do. They definitely try to. And, and that's natural, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning a person obviously has their own uh, will and desire and they and a desired outcome. Um, and they'll often uh, they'll say, I don't know what I'm going to do if you tell me I can't do this or, uh, you know, something like that. And sometimes, surprisingly, people are looking, you know, I'll, I'll say it in Hebrew first, they're fishing for a chumrah. Uh, they're looking for a stringency. They're not, uh, they, they don't want a, a leniency on, uh, on something. Um, and sometimes they'll make that very clear. 
right? Uh, sometimes it's something silly. I don't want, I'm too tired to go to this simcha. Tell me that because I'm in Avelis, I'm not, you know, I'm not allowed to go to this. Um, and sometimes it's just that they're very, very righteous and religious and, and, and they, they can't imagine being lenient on, on something, but there was some sort of dispute, husband and wife, whether we should insist the children do this or not. So is it permissible? You know, can we do it? And the person asking the question very much wants it not to be permissible. Obviously, more often it goes in the other direction, but it can go in both directions. You see, what's tricky about answering that is that uh, there's a concept in halacha, yikuv hadina sahar, that the, the, the letter of the law is what carries the day. But that's not always true, meaning the Jewish legal system allows for certain concepts such as hefsid meruba, if there's a major monetary loss, shasatchak kediyavidami, when something is a pressing situation, we view it as if, uh, as we would treat something that's already happened, where you're just cleaning up as opposed to uh, how to deal with something in a, uh, in a more direct manner. Now, that, those, those concepts are not to be employed uh, universally, and you have to really get a sense of the situation. Is this indeed a shasatchak? Is it really a pressing situation? How much of a loss is a significant monetary loss? You have time for a quick story. Yeah, go ahead. We love stories. One of the outstanding uh, rabbis in Russia Yeshiva, in our Yeshiva, in what I teach in Yeshiva University, is uh, Rav Yaakov Neuberger. Um, I, you probably, your brother, I know, is very close with his son, Rav Mati, um, who's also outstanding. Uh, so Rav Neuberger is one of the biggest tzaddikim I know. And he said that when he was starting out as a rabbi, someone called him up and asked a question about um, dishes. They, they inherited dishes from their grandmother or something, and the grandmother, non-kosher dishes. And they wanted to know, is there any way to salvage these dishes? Is there anything that they could do? Uh, because they're not, typically you can't kosher china. So he came up with a leniency. I'm not going to get into all the three stud and the three considerations that he had to, to be lenient. But one of the considerations was that it was a hefsid marubu, it was a significant loss of money. And he paskined, he ruled that they're allowed to keep their dishes, provided that they do whatever uh, he suggested, whatever he recommended that they do. A young rabbi at the time. He said he got a call from a more senior rabbi in the community who said to him, Rabbi Neuberger, do you know that the family for whom you just ruled that it's going to be a significant financial loss has two Mercedes parked in the driveway? This is when that used to mean something, right? Uh, imagine like, uh, right. So they have two Mercedes parked in the driveway. It's such a major, they can't afford new dishes. Give me a break. I mean, that's not a major, for me and you, maybe that's a major financial loss, but not, not for them. And he felt so guilty. He felt so terribly about that. Is that is is it not called the Hefsid Maruba just because people have have some money? And uh, he went to yeshiva the next day. And Rav David Lipshitz Levracha was one of the Rashi yeshiva was a great great Torah giant, and was there. And he told Rav David um, this this story. And Rav David said, "No, you paskin correctly. You're right. You don't have to feel badly about it at all." He didn't even know the people that were calling him. He said years later, he was at a bar mitzvah or something, and a uh, man comes over to him with his wife and his uh, and a bunch of young children who look like yeshiva kids. And he said, Rabbi Neuberger, I want to introduce you to my family. It's because of you that these children are in yeshiva and that we're religious today. And he said, I don't think I know you. <laughs> you know, what, what are you talking about? And the fellow said, years ago, my wife and I, we're not, when we got married, we were not religious, and we were thinking about whether we want to become more observant or not. And I was more into it than she was. You know, I was a little bit ahead of her in terms of our religious growth. And when we were thinking, should we 
become kosher or not. My wife said, I'll tell you what, if I get to keep my grandma's china, then I'm, I'm all in. I'll be kosher. Otherwise, I'm not. And we called you. And uh, you told us we can keep grandma's china. As long as we went through, we did some uh, you know, tedious work to, to make it happen. So, uh, yeah, but those concepts cannot be applied indiscriminately, meaning it has to be, it has to be applied in, in, in proper measure, but it's built into the system. It's not like it's outside the system that like, oh, we throw halacha away when it's too difficult. No, we, we're always, meaning the Jewish people are all about throughout the generations, Mesiris Nefesh, which is that we literally are willing to give up our lives for our religion. You know, uh, the Chuvah Sarashba writes that when you say, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elkeinu Hashem Echad, you should have in mind that not only that you're accepting the yoke of heaven, that you're accepting all Malchus Shemayim, but also that you're willing to die for that acceptance. You're willing to die for that belief. So we're all about Mesiris Nefesh. So it's not like outside the system, that we have a system of halacha, and then, you know, sometimes we'll throw it away. No, it's built into the system are these concepts of Hefzin Meruba and Shas Al-Chak and other such similar concepts. It would have really been a Hefzin Meruba in that case, meaning right. we shouldn't be judging based on, on the cars. There's more to the question in that case than money. Right, meaning that the irony of that story is that the accusation was that Rabbi Neuberger had too narrow a view. Uh-huh. And the rabbi that was calling him turned out to have too narrow right, a view right. of the situation. Right, very interesting. Okay, so that brings me to the day Kobe died. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember where I was. I was in a water park. I think it was midwinter vacation. I looked down at my phone and, uh, you know, I'm not saying I was alive when JFK was assassinated, but uh, it wasn't one of those messages you see and you move on, right? They're, you know, one of the greatest athletes to ever play the game of basketball. And why am I mentioning that on a podcast named Kosher Money, sitting with the Rabbi Leibowitz, but perusing the, the different conversations and shiram you've had, this one stuck out to me, right? We'll run through that in a few other cases, but what was the question you received as it relates to Kobe Bryant? Yeah, so uh, one of the students told me that his uncle runs a sports memorabilia business online. He sells sports memorabilia. So he sells all sorts of things, including posters of Kobe Bryant signed by Kobe Bryant. And he was selling it for just to pick a number for $50 or something. And someone ordered it on, I don't remember what day of the week Kobe died, but let's say someone ordered it on a Sunday and he had a week to process the order and to send it out. Let's say, for example, again, I don't remember. Someone can Google it and find out. But let's say Kobe died on Tuesday mm-hmm. before the order was processed. Now, that same poster that was $50 is probably now worth $500 or $5,000. Uh, it's a Kobe Bryant autograph poster. And he was just, uh, his life ended in the most horrific, unexpected way. And there's not going to be any more Kobe memorabilia that they're going to be making. So the fellow wanted to know, well, the fellow did what he did. The nephew wanted to know if his uncle did the right thing. Um, He contacted the customer and he said, I'm sorry, I cannot process your order. And he didn't follow through on the order. And he put it back up for sale for a significantly higher amount of money. So the question was, you know, this is a great example, actually, of seeing the world with the glasses of halacha. You could look at that and say, oh, crazy story. My uncle was selling something and it's just a fun story to tell. Or you could say, wait, as religious Jews, we believe that God has something to say about this. Like Hashem gave us an instruction book 
about how to live life, not only in the in the synagogue, about how to live life everywhere and in, in, in every interaction. And there must be something in in the realm of Torah law that 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 relates to this. And, and indeed there is. It's a fairly complicated uh, sugya. But but there's there's plenty on the topic of if you promise something, if a an, an effective uh, form of transaction has been made already or not been made already, what if it hasn't been made but money went through, uh, you know exactly. And there are many different levels of what's acceptable, and you know, and it ranges from by pulling back the poster you might be stealing to maybe you're not stealing, but our rabbis say that a person is cursed for not keeping his word, to maybe uh, a lower level than that of which means the rabbis are just not pleased with the person who behaves in this way, even though maybe he doesn't receive some sort of terrible curse, to he's he's just someone who's deemed not trustworthy, to, to perhaps it's even permissible. And those are all the possibilities. They all exist within the halacha, depending on the finer points of the details, which I presume you probably don't want to get into. The uh, <laughs> I wish we had the time, but yeah. So, so where did you go with this particular? So uh, most of the rabbis that I spoke to, um, I br- a lot of the questions I bring to more senior and frankly, much more accomplished Talmidei uh, Chachamim than I am to, uh, to, to get their, their opinion, their approach, because I, it's also that's how I get trained in terms of how to deal with Shaila, is that to deal with the question is that I look at it, I try to figure it out, and then I see what I was missing when I speak to Rav Shechter or Rabbi Willig or Rav Asher Weiss or whoever it is that, uh, that knows a lot more than me. I think in this case, I think Rav Shechter was out of town. I think I ended up speaking to Rabbi J.D. Bleich, uh, who's also an absolute Torah giant. And I think he said that it might be stealing, but it's certainly something for which a person uh, receives what we call a Misha Para, which is the, the next level down, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that our rabbis institute some sort of curse on such a person. Mm-hmm. So someone came over to me recently. He said that he was involved in some sort of investment deal. And turns out that it was some level of Ponzi scheme. And he he tells me, this is maybe last week, he tells me, we got to do an episode on this. We got to get the guy's name out there. And I said, you know, like, Lashon Hara, is it, are we speaking bad about somebody? There are many laws related to that. He goes, no, but you'd be protecting and saving so many others, assuming that what he's saying is true. And, and I said, you know, I'd, ra- I'd rather just ask Rabbi Leibowitz some softballs, you know, like, <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it's, I got sponsors. I, I can't just, you know, unleash on, on on a microphone. But then when I was perusing the list, you actually have a, a, a share on it. Can you go on a podcast to discuss a story of someone stealing millions from you? Yeah. Um. So I'm sure he's listening. And what? What comes to mind when you hear a question like yeah, that? Yeah, so there, there's, there are conflicting values over here, meaning there is this concept of which means that you're not supposed to stand idly by while other people are being taken advantage of. Literally means if other people are in harm's way, but it would, it would apply equally to people being taken advantage of on a monetary basis as well. So you can't stand idly by and let that happen. You're supposed to try to protect people to the extent that you're able to. Yet, on the other hand, as you just noted, uh, there is a prohibition called Lashon Hara that you're not allowed to speak uh, slanderous things about other people. And even if it's true, 
you're not supposed to say things uh, that are negative about other people. So the Chafetz Chaim wrote um, two very, very important works about Lashon Hara. He wrote a sefer called Shemir HaSalashon, another sefer called Chafetz Chaim, which is where he got his name. His mom didn't call him Chafetz Chaim when he was a baby. And he goes through, it's an ingenious work because there is no, you know, Masechta, there's no tractate in the Talmud about Lashon Hara, about slanderous speech. There's not even really a section in Shulchan Aruch about it at all. Um, there's a comment of one of the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch and uh, Magen Avram, where he says, you know, it's one of those prohibitions that somehow didn't make it into the Shulchan Aruch, but it's such a major prohibition. And the Chavetz Chaim wrote two full books on the topic by collecting from all over the place. It's really one of the most impressive works in the past couple of hundred years, more impressive than his other work, which is the Mishabura, which is quite impressive. So uh, anyway, he uh, he goes through what it takes to be permitted to speak Lashon Hara, to be permitted to speak negatively about someone, Litoelis, when there's a benefit to, to sharing that information. And, and there are a lot of criteria that have to be met. You are not allowed to share the information with people for whom it will be of no value. Uh, you're not allowed to share the information in any exaggerated way whatsoever. You're only allowed to say exactly what happened, exactly what is. You're not allowed to exaggerate. It, you have to have firsthand knowledge of it. It can't be, oh, I heard from so-and-so that. And a lot of these things come up all the time. These A good chunk of the of the questions that any community rabbi will get will be on, on unrelated topics, not necessarily about going on podcasts, but you know about shidduch questions. Um, I know this about this family. When someone calls, what do I say? Or this person wronged me. You know, am I allowed to tell that to their business partners or something like that? So one has to be very, very careful. I would have to know more of the details, but I would think that while it's um, it's probably good for ratings uh, on a podcast, good for more views and more clicks and more. Uh, usually, there's there's a relationship between what's uh, most uh, sensational and what's most proper and uh it's an inverse relationship so uh, i would think it's probably not the venue through which to spread that information i would imagine there would be many listeners to which a conversation like that would have no value and for and that would be problematic that would be based problematic, on, on yeah. what the rub is saying we'll be right back to this week's episode but first a message from kolal chabad let me read to you a letter that was written screams fill the air but for the first time all month it's not because of the terror attack Quote, it's the first day in a month that my children are smiling, free, laughing, and happy, one mother said with tears. And because of that, it's the first time I can let go a little too. This was written by a mother whose family survived the attack. And she writes, hundreds of children run around freely. Parents are watching with a smile. For some, it's the first real one in all month, in the month following the attack. It's an afternoon to play, to enjoy, and just to be kids again. A few weeks after the attack, Kol Chabad partnered with Nitzor to rent out Magic Cast, an amusement park, and give free admission to families displaced from the Gaza envelope. Stories like this are chronicled here in their publication. But more than that, it tells you of stories of survival, how people have rallied with Kol Chabad to help people across Israel who were displaced, traumatized, needed all sorts of therapy and food, shelter, but even more than that, to live like they used to, right? To have some sort of 
normalcy within their lives. And that's what Kol Chabad is doing. There are 300,000 Israelis who left their jobs to fight, but who's fighting for them? And the answer is Kol Chabad. So if you have the ability to give some money, it could be a small amount, it could be a large amount, visit kolchabad.org slash kosher money. Link is in the show notes. Give what you can. This might be your 25th time hearing it. You haven't given yet, but take the time. Give something. It is eternal. That is the reward for something like this. Now back to this week's episode. It's interesting. You also mentioned all the works that the Chafetz Chaim wrote in his lifetime. And I recently was learning the Peleyayats. And the Peleyayats was, his name was Rabbi Eliezer Papa. And he was Nifter at the age of 41. And yet, Art Schools now, he, he wrote the Peleyayats. They're breaking it out into four different books, four different Sfarim. And when I read through it, it's it's a guidebook to how to live life. And I'm blown away by someone that young was able to put something. You want to look at, at the size of the Sefer, that's one thing, but also the, the nuances and, and the guidebook of, of life. And, and, you know, it's, it's, Almost like I think to, to myself, like I'm 37, right? I don't have my safer coming out. I mean, I guess I have a little bit of a podcast, but do you think it's like a, and I didn't prepare you with this question, but like, I guess you're off the cuff remarks. Do you think it's, it's a byproduct of focus, right? The Yoimam Valayla, day and night, they they worked and they had a singular mission, a singular focus, no smartphones, you know, not to say that there aren't many people in today's generation that are extremely focused, but when I hear of a 41-year-old, you know, how much more he could have produced. And he, it wasn't the only safer he wrote. So, right. you know, what comes to mind when I, when I share something What like comes that? to mind is that I believe that Hashem sometimes puts special neshamos into this world to accomplish a particular mission, and they're not given much time to accomplish that mission. And when someone accomplishes something so extraordinary in such a short lifespan, it's almost like God dropped a gift on a generation and said, here's this gift for this, meaning this is not normal. Uh, the Arizal, the Arizal died in his 30s. I mean, that's it's it's mind-blowing. You're not even supposed to learn Kabbalah till you're 40, right? right. I, I mean, it's 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 mind-boggling. The Arizal, the Ramchal, the Ramchal was a gift to his to to all generations that Hashem put that neshama in this in this world for that for that period of time. The other thing that comes to mind is something you alluded to, which is that when a person finds their mission in life, it is remarkable what they can accomplish. Most of us spend most of our lives just trying to figure out what we're cut out to do and you know where we can make our impact. Sometimes a person picks up on that at a young age, they're able to, to realize what they were put on this earth to do, and even if in other areas they couldn't be successful, they wouldn't be successful, when they find that mission, I, I just, just to give an example, I was just in Florida last week. So my wife and I uh, just went away for a week and we just needed a, a break. It was our 25th anniversary. So we decided, you know, we'll just go to Florida for a, uh, for a Shabbos. So we were walking by the Grove in the supermarket, a kosher supermarket on Thursday, and there was a sign there that said, come meet Ellie Beer on Friday between 12 and 2. 
So I said, Eli Beer is a hero. He's the one that started United Hatzalah. I want to meet Eli Beer. I never met Eli Beer. So we went back. It was a sarbatev. This was a fast day anyway, so there wasn't much to do. We went to, uh, went to meet Eli Beer, and he was selling his book. So I bought his book. And it's a remarkable book. It's called 90 Seconds. But he basically came up with the idea. He was someone who didn't graduate elementary school. He was thrown out of every school he was ever in. But he discovered this mission as, as a young teenager to come up with a way that a response to a medical emergency shouldn't take 15 minutes of fighting through traffic, of an ambulance fighting through traffic on crowded Israeli roads. And, and he came up with the ambucycle. And, uh, and, and the book is called 90 Seconds because his mission was that any medical emergency anywhere in Israel, someone should be on the scene in 90 seconds or less. And it's remarkable. It's remarkable what the person accomplished. Now, could he have accomplished as, as a partner in a law firm? No way. He couldn't even graduate elementary school, right? Could he have accomplished as some great Talmud Chacham? Probably not, right? Meaning when a person discovers their mission in life, they can do amazing things in a very short amount of time. The trick is finding that, that mission. It's hard to segue to the Super Bowl and Costco, but that's where we're going. <laughs> that's where we're going. <laughs> that's where we're going. Okay, so, and, and this comes up a whole lot, returns, especially free returns. Mm -hmm. Super Bowl, someone bought a television. In your case, I think it was someone who was traveling to or from Israel and they left a laptop, but they weren't able to get their laptop in time. So they went to the store, purchased a laptop, and it says free returns within seven days. That's great. I only need it for five. So I'll study for my finals and then head back to Costco or wherever it was and return it. Can I do that? I think very strongly no. Uh, I'm aware that there are people that disagree with me about this. Costco is not running a gemach. They're not running a free um, you know, chesed uh, society where you come and borrow tablecloths for your next, uh, you know, for your next happy occasion or something like that. What they're, what they're running is a business. Um, they have generous return policies because they have tremendous buying power and because they want their customers to know that you're not going to have too much red tape to cut through when, when a purchase doesn't work out the way you wanted it to. It is not proper to utilize a, a store that's trying to sell things as just a free rental. Uh, not just not proper. I believe that is a violation of a, a prohibition called Geneva Stas. Uh, the Gemara Maseches Chul and Daf Dalid tells us that you're not allowed to be gonev das. You're not allowed to be deceitful with other people. And this is whether it's a Jew or a non-Jew. The Gemara is explicit about that. That it applies to Jew and non-Jew alike. And I think when you go into a store and make a purchase, it's that is your statement to the store that I'm interested in purchasing this item so much so that I'm actually purchasing it. If you have zero interest of keeping it then I think it's at least a violation of Geneva's Das. In addition to that, the level of Chil Hashem, of desecration of God's name, that can emerge from that is, is really um, something that people oftentimes don't take into account. I know that I go upstate for one month uh, in the summer. I think I saw you once at uh, one of the eateries there or something. I remember a few years mine, ago. But, uh, apparently. Yeah, so uh, when you go to Walmart upstate, they have return policies that are in place from October through May. And then they have different return policies from June through August, uh, June through September, rather. Well, why is that? Because they've realized that people come up to the country and they buy things at the beginning of the summer. 
and they return them at the end of the summer. Now, who are those people? It's us. It's the Orthodox Jewish community. And if Walmart has to change their return policies because we're taking unfair advantage of it, what does that say about us? Is that how we want to be known? You know, Ravaron Lapiansky, one of the great rabbis of our generation in America today, once commented, probably more than once, I heard it once from him, that, you know, anti-Semitism is terrible. And there's no explanation for it. There's no, and there's no excuse for it. But we also shouldn't feed it. We shouldn't give more of a reason for it. Meaning he gave a muscle of a man who was waving a red flag in front of a raging bull. And someone said to the man, what are you crazy? What are you doing? Why are you waving a red flag? And he said, I'm crazy? The bull's got an anger management problem. Why is that my issue? So you know that there are anti-Semites out there, but you're going to wave the red flag in front of the anti-Semites? So he, he, what he recommended, tip your Uber driver generously and tip everybody generously and be kind and go out of your way to be extra honest and uh, extra careful in the way you deal with other people. So both from a halachic and a hashkafic, uh, you know, perspective, um, I guess, I don't know, you'll figure out the subtitles of those words. Um, the, uh, I think it's, it's really wrong. You know, the people that buy the big screen TV in Costco on Sunday morning of the Super Bowl and return it on Monday morning, that's, that's problematic. One of the topics I want to cover is paying vendors. I think people do a very good job paying W-2 employees or whatever the tax form of the day is. But people that are their employees, they pay them consistently on time. No one would ever dare pay an employee, an ongoing employee, a day late, even an hour late. It's, it's biblical in the actual sense. But what about vendors, right? You talk about babysitters, tailors. If someone has a business, they're using outside vendors. Does the same prohibition fall into play? And if yes, why is there sometimes a laxness when it comes to it? There is a Torah prohibition to delay payment. It is an explicit verse in the Torah that one is not allowed to, by a day, you're not allowed to delay payment, by a single day. Meaning, if a person did a job for me, today, and uh, they finish their job before nightfall, I have to pay them today. I'm not allowed to pay them tomorrow even. Now it happens to be that if they don't bill me till tomorrow, or there's no expectation to get paid until tomorrow, uh, so then I'm allowed to pay tomorrow. But that's like everything in monetary law, is that if there's an understanding between the two parties, a meeting of the minds, that this is going to be the condition of uh, of, of my employment or of, uh, of the service that I'm providing, that money comes due in one week from now, so then the money comes due only in one week from now. But, but without any meeting of the minds, without any such agreement, it's understood that, uh, or without any uh, common practice within the industry, it's understood that you have to pay today. You have to, in fact, the postcom write that a person should make sure before a worker comes to their house that they have money on hand, that they're going to be able to have, whether if it's cash that you need to pay them with, um, hopefully you should, that's a different discussion, whether you should be paying in cash nowadays, but they, at least you should be able to uh, have their Venmo information or their, uh, you know, quick pay, you know, their Zelle information, and to be able to pay them, uh, to pay them immediately. 
Uh, it's a real problem. Why do people not pay vendors on time? First of all, Halavai, I hope you're right that everyone pays their employees on time. Um, unfortunately, yeshivas are known not always to, to pay on time because they always have to do so much fundraising that sometimes they fall behind on payments. Lots of people could probably tell you about executive directors of schools that have come to them and said, we haven't paid our rebbeim and we're a week late on payment. Please help us out. And that's up to all of the balabatim that are affiliated with that school to realize that it's our mitzvah to pay them on time, that we have to make sure. Uh, thank God I've always worked for yeshivas that always paid on time. I've been lucky in that way. That's not, uh, it's not necessarily the industry standard, even though it, it ought to be. But yeah, why are people more more lenient when it comes to vendors? I think people maybe just feel that someone that they're not going to have an ongoing relationship with the person and it's a one-off deal, so they don't have as much to lose. If your employees are disgruntled, your business is going to fall apart. If this vendor is upset at me, I'll find a different vendor. Um, maybe I'm not. Maybe the reason I don't want to pay is because I feel that he didn't deliver, uh, you know, as as well as I would have liked him to. So I'm punishing him by not paying on time, even though he ultimately did deliver. And and I, I didn't ask a question uh, whether I'm entitled to withhold payment based on uh, my my uh, lack of satisfaction with what he delivered. But it's a real problem. It's a real real problem. Which brings me to there's a couple of different questions we can go but maybe let's start with the shidduch question where someone finds out afterwards that the shatchin has fees in the amounts of thousands of dollars the shidduch has been cemented they're engaged and i guess the crux of, of the question is that there was a lack of clarity right now what happens right so the particular case you're referring to that i was asked about was a young man who received a call out of the blue from a woman who says, oh, I have a great idea for you, a young lady that uh, you should date, and um, and here's her information. And they went out, and uh, sure enough, they got engaged. And then the shadchan says, okay, that will be $7,000 for each side um, to pay uh, a shadchan fee. Now, shadchanim are entitled to payment. That is, a, it's a brokerage fee. We view it in halacha as any, just like a real estate broker is entitled to a brokerage free fee, uh, Shadchan is also entitled to a brokerage fee. It's not easy work, and a lot of times it involves putting a lot of time and effort. Sometimes it goes easily, but there are a lot of times that they put a lot of time and effort and it doesn't go anywhere. So it balances out, and that's that's just like a real estate broker. Sometimes, sometimes it goes easily. They show a couple the first house, and it's a multi-million dollar home, and they get a huge commission, and it took them five minutes. And sometimes they spend weeks and weeks and weeks, and nothing comes of it. So it's the same thing in, in halacha as far as the shadchan's fee. The rule should always be. In whenever you're dealing with 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 any sort of monetary um, you know deal with somebody else, be as explicit as you possibly can be upfront. Then you avoid all of these issues. Meaning, if a shadchan calls and says, "Look, I'm a shadchan for the stars. I only deal with high end uh, you know type of uh, business with very wealthy clients," and there are people like that that will charge. You know, even when I mentioned this to people, some people I said. So the Shadchan wanted $7,000 from each side. So some people said, that's insane. Who charges that amount of money for a Shadchan? And other people said, oh, that's it? You know, it all depends where you're coming from. It all depends what, uh, you know, what, what, what assumptions you make. But you see, the range of assumptions is tremendous. 
Uh, so it's always, always, always better to just be upfront, put all the information out there on the table, and then you don't have to worry about any of this later. When you're not upfront, so then we have the difficult job of trying to figure out community standards, meaning if the shadchan is upfront, they could charge whatever they want. They could say, you don't want to use my services? I charge $25,000 a side. You don't want to use my services? So good, so don't, and then you won't. But if they're, uh, even though the going rate may be $2,500 uh, per side, if they're not upfront about it, then we would have to go by going rate in that community, which is not easy to figure out always. For example, one of my students uh, grew up in Lawrence, New York, which uh, we're familiar with right around here. It's where I grew up also. Um, it's not a poor community. And his kala is also for his wife, now wife at that time, his uh, bride-to-be was, uh, I think, also from the Five Towns area. And the Shadchan was from Jerusalem from the uh, Ramad Eshkol area of uh, Jerusalem. So which going rate? The going rate of Ramad Eshkol, the going rate of Lawrence. The go- so it, it can be tricky. It can be difficult to figure that out. And it's much, much better to just spell everything out. Meikara at the beginning. Speaking of spelling things out, let's talk about kickbacks and commission, right? I was discussing with someone who learned that him and his wife were planning a bar mitzvah and they hired a party planner, which we're not going to give a psak on and let your wife know you didn't give a psak on whether or not someone should hire a party planner. <laughs> but there's a lot of vendors. And the reason someone hires a party planner is so that they don't have to be dealing with the headache. Similar to when someone builds a house, they hire a general contractor and their job is I'm going to pay you and you go ahead and deal with the headaches, you avoid the headaches, you have a good understanding of the industry. I'm building a house one time, I'm making a simcha one time. I don't want to learn the ins and outs. I'm going to pay you uh, $10,000 to handle everything. Are you required to disclose any kickbacks or commissions that you're getting? I don't think so. Meaning, I think it's understood when you hire, I think it's just the nature of the industry that party planners have their relationships. What do their relationships entail and why do they have those relationships? So sometimes, obviously, it will involve uh, some money that they're that they're getting back. If the party planner hires someone who is not um, doing the best possible job, it will ruin their own reputation. Meaning, people will say, "Who is the party planner here?" Oh, well, the food wasn't good, the lighting wasn't right, the uh, flowers are, you know, flimsy or whatever. Whatever the uh, the issues will be. But I think it's I don't know. You would know better than me, but I think it's pretty standard um, when people. Uh, work as middlemen, that they have relationships, and relationships is just a fancy way of saying that there's money that uh, that changes hands, you know, that there's a benefit to that. Before there was a standard, though, day one, which that took place, would that have been a no-no? Yeah, so if it's surprising to the to the person, meaning I think that I'm paying you, let's say, the vendor gets uh, $1,000, and you're getting 10%, you know, and that's what I'm willing to pay you. Now you're telling me that the vendor is really only getting nine hundred dollars, and you're getting, uh, you know, and you're getting way more than ten than ten percent. So that would be very surprising to me, and uh, that's you know that's not what I was willing to pay you. I wasn't willing to pay you that that amount of money. On the other hand, one could argue that uh, you're telling me, meaning the party planner issues a bill and says, okay, the uh, flowers are going to be again just to pick round numbers are going to be $1,000. The uh, food is going to be $10,000. And I know the food I'm getting. I know the flowers I'm getting. 
what difference does it make to me? How much of that money goes to the vendor or goes to the party planner? If the party planner has a relationship where they use this vendor over and over again, and therefore they get a much, a much better price from the vendor, so they can use the extra money for themselves, you know, that's, that's part of the deal. I'm hiring the party planner, not because they get me such great deals, but because, it, like you said, it saves me the headache. We'll be right back to this week's episode, but first, a message from me. I don't want to say a message from Twillery because this is my message. They didn't tell me what to say, but I am wearing one of their shirts. If you can't see, if you're listening on the audio platforms, this is the official term that I made up is a super comfy long sleeve polo shirt. I love them. I do not want to take it off at night and many nights I don't. I sleep in it. Now you'd be like, ew, you sleep in your shirt. It's super comfortable. It legitimately is. They even have them in full button downs. So if you want to wear a white shirt, but you don't want to jeopardize the comfortability of a polo-like shirt, it's super comfortable. I love them. I have it in dark gray, uh, blue. I have them in white. They make short sleeve, long sleeve. And get this, in the winter, when you go outside, but it's not super cold, you don't want to wear a coat, this is what I do. I wear this, this vest. You can look on their website. It does a lot, but it's not a coat. It's a vest and it's comfortable. You zip it up. You feel like it's giving you a hug. And when you don't want to wear a coat, you don't want to wear a jacket. You want something to keep your torso warm. It's called a vest. They didn't invent the vest, but they've perfected it. Visit twillery.com slash kosher money. Look at everything they have. They're running a New Year sale. You're probably listening to this in three years from now. I'm sure they have a whole lot more now. Tailored for performance. That's Twillery, and it could be yours at a great price. And for those saying, wow, it is a lot of money, or it costs more than other vests, that could be true. And if you're not in the market, don't. But if you're looking for something comfortable, that's also durable, right? You don't want to buy something and not have it last and then have to buy another one. I used to buy these shoes on Amazon that were 30 bucks. I had to buy them every three months. So instead of buying a $120 pair, I bought four $30 pairs because it wore out. So you make the decision, durability, take it all into equation, and maybe you'll make Twillery yours. Now back to this week's episode. I was speaking to somebody and they're behind this movement of flowers where whoever's making the simcha that week, they all come in together and they all leave the flowers in the hall instead of... I, I have to tell you, I've I've had weeks where I've gone to Marina Del Rey three nights in a row mm-hmm. and it's an entirely different flower arrangement at the chuppah. And I'm looking at literally tens of thousands of dollars of flowers in front of me and every night it changes mm-hmm. and it drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly what I was thinking. I, I could have made the connection between the family that made the wedding last night. No, and the family no kickback, right? <laughs> no kickback. Just my gosh, this, it's so wasteful. Right. Flowers in Okay, I'm not going to get into my whole yeah. spiel of flowers, but it's so wasteful to just change out everything the next day. It's really unbelievable. We just lost all our floral sponsors. Yes. So thank you for that. Yeah, we, we want to do a whole uh, episode on, on Simchos and, and you know what's needed, what's not. There's so much potential wasted spending where I think people are coming to the realization that, yeah, you could put 
$100,000 into the event, or you could put $50,000 and then put the other $50,000 into the Hassan and Kala's pocket and let them... Uh, I, 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 I'm I not so sure that people are coming to that. Oh, no? I, I wish I was as positive as you. I spoke to one are. person that I made a generalization on the whole world. But okay. <laughs> No, I, I mean, during COVID, we all thought, okay, that's the end of the fancy simchas, right. and now things are going to go, you know, are going to calm down a lot. The second COVID was over, before, however you define the end of yeah. COVID, but it was it was right back to uh, where it was, and if not more. Did you attend simchas when it was, the, the COVID simchas yeah, more intimate? Yeah, I, I got COVID really early on, uh-huh. so when people were making backyard weddings and they were being very careful, and they were, so I was like a prime candidate to be Masada Kedushin because I already uh-huh. had, had COVID, so I was Masada Kedushin at a lot of backyard weddings where it's like a minion of people, but only 10 people were allowed, and the is there, so one person was on the neighboring property and like, you know, figuring out, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of those simchas. Some of them, look, they were terribly sad. I mean, there were weddings that grandparents couldn't attend. That's not... That's not the way Simcha should be either. But it also gave a certain level of clarity of, you know, what really is needed and isn't needed. I did, I was in Masada Kedushin at a wedding of a cousin of mine, and they gave to-go boxes of chickies, you know, on the way out. That was fine. Everyone was happy. You know? um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I'd be very interested to hear that episode, to hear who you're going to even interview about that. Right. No, we there is reach. a Takano yeah. Hall that has opened in the Five Towns. Uh-huh. That might not be a bad interview to speak to uh, the people involved in the Takano Halls in different places. But even in the Five Towns, there's a Takano Hall. And the primary goal is to bring costs down? Yeah, so what they did is, I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you a story. That Moshe David is a caterer in what they call the mansion. You know, used to, the JCC building mm-hmm. it used yeah. to be a reformed temple way back they arranged for Takana weddings. I think they have two levels, $25,000 wedding or a $35,000 wedding, which all included music and uh, everything, uh, photographer, everything included in that price. And he told me that someone went for the higher option, $35,000, I think he got whatever, I don't know what the details, maybe a second photographer or something, and a few other things. And he said the father of the chassan, the groom came to him and said, um, and he said, this is a guy who pays full tuition for his children, you know, winter vacation, they go to Florida, they don't maybe go to the most exotic place, but, you know, the, the family is able to, you know, to, to get away every now and then. And uh, the fellow said, this is my third child I'm marrying off. The first two, I went into debt to pay for the wedding. And he said, I have two checks for you. He gave him the other side couldn't afford anything. He had to pay for the whole wedding. He said, here's $35,000 for the wedding. And here's another $3,000 to help pay for someone else's wedding. He said, I want you to know you've turned me from a taker into a giver by giving an affordable option. And it's just, he said, it was the most powerful moment to realize that there's so much waste and people go into so much debt for what amounts to five hours. And I know I've married off a child and I'm about to, God willing, marry off a second child. The wedding is a very emotional and very meaningful time. And it's not just five hours because you always think back to it. It is a really, really important event. You know, there is a reason that Simchas uh, Chasen Vakala is a very important mitzvah. And, uh, you know, and it should be done nicely. And, it, you know, all of that. But it has to be done responsibly as well. Right, we could probably sit here for hours, and we're going to do a round two, but Chalav uh, Stam, yay or nay? Yeah, we could do Meiser tuition. Um, I guess what would be, oh, before we 
get your closing remarks. If someone does have a question, is email address the best way and how would they reach you? Um, yeah, my email is pretty uh, is a pretty decent way to reach. I happen to be a WhatsApp person. I okay. respond to everything on WhatsApp because it just allows when I'm driving, it allows me to use my voice to uh, respond. So uh, I don't yeah. want to overwhelm if uh, 47 people reach out. Yeah, no, that's pretty Love typical. Anyway, um, but my email address is bknwrabbi at gmail.com as in base Knesset Northwood Mirror, bknwrabbi at gmail.com. Oftentimes when someone emails me, I'll just, send them my phone number and tell them to WhatsApp me. <laughs> but uh, And yeah. they're able to express themselves a bit better in a voice note than so, it is in an email. So sometimes people express themselves better. And sometimes it's a, obviously, oftentimes it's a Shiloh that needs a phone call. Sometimes it's a Shiloh that needs an in-person meeting. Um, you know, there are different levels of questions. Right. So, you know, that's my job to figure out what needs what. You know, a lot of times people don't really have a sense of what needs what. Rabbi, I need to speak to you. This can't be on, on a voice note. Right. My milchik fork, but you know, like, you know, that really could have. Right. Um, but uh, grandmother's milchik. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, people can feel free to to reach out, and I would encourage everyone to reach out to their own rabbis as well. You know, or right. but of course, I'm I'm always happy to help whenever I can. So I, I could have asked anything in this in this conversation. What didn't I ask that you think? I should have asked, or what's something that you maybe mentioned that's worth re-highlighting? Um, we did an entire episode on Meister with Rabbi Yosef Kushner, and right. he's he's energetic, and he he's quoting his father, Rabbi Shlomo Miller, and he's pulling from here, and people are emailing him, and I'm always so impressed because people afford it, and he literally bullet points of replies, this question, this question, this question, this question, yeah. and and what I started doing is make my prediction of how he's going to answer a friend. And I'm always way off. Like we well, think Mishpat is complicated. He's yeah. an expert. He happens uh -huh. to be fantastic. Uh, there are a few experts in monetary law. I'm not one of them at all, uh, but there are a few like real experts in monetary law that are worthwhile having. It's worthwhile for every rabbi to have their contact information. I happen to, I think I've only reached out to Rikushner once or twice, but Rabbi Ari Marburger in, in, in Lakewood is a tremendous expert in monetary law. There are people like that. I'm not even talking about Gedola Yisrael, like, you know, Rav Kushner's father-in-law, Rav Shlomo Miller, or uh, Rav Shechter, or uh, Rav Ashur Weiss, or people of that caliber who are just experts in everything. I'm talking about experts in like that particular uh, area of, of halacha. Um, what would I highlight? I, I would say that I think it's important when dealing with money, well, two things. First of all, to try to think, if everyone behaved the way I'm behaving, would that be good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? And with that you know, perspective, or put differently, if everyone behaved the way I'm behaving and it was plastered on the front page of the newspaper, or you know, that's the old imagery, or you know, the it was on uh, you know whatever it was on Drudge Report or whatever it is, it was on somewhere that uh, that millions of people will see it. Would that be good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? That's a good you know mental exercise for a person to go through when dealing with with monetary issues and really with many many uh, different issues. The other thing I would I would encourage people is that when you're dealing with a monetary dispute with somebody else. Do not go and expect an answer from your rabbi about who's right when you're the only one that presented your case. Sometimes rabbis fall into this trap, um, so it's tricky because someone will call and will say, my Rav told me that I'm 100% right. 
Well, how could your Rav know if you're 100% right? They didn't even hear the other side. They didn't even hear the other. They only heard your version of the of the story. No, Bayes didn't worth anything, whatever Paskin based on based on one side of the story. So one should frame the question, not trap the rabbi into making that mistake. Frame the question properly to say, would I have a decent case in a based in if everything I'm describing is, is accurate? And, and maybe frame it that way so that the rabbi won't fall into the trap of poskening a Shiloh that he has no business uh, ruling on. I once called, I think it was Rabbi Bergman in Flatbush, and I was ready to present my case. And he goes, is the person that you're talking about with you? I'm like, no. He's like, okay, we'll talk. Get them or we're not going to have a conversation. And he hung up. Perfect. You yeah. know? But very few rabbis have that level of, uh, right. I guess, confidence and, uh, yeah. <laughs> so so I guess to the, the last question on, on that note is, and I don't know if it's a halachic question as much as it is an ethics or relationship with God. Is there an Indian to not want to go to Besden? To just say, you know what? I'm not going to make something out of could be nothing could be something could be everything versus no i gotta stick up for my family i gotta stay there there are repercussions as it relates to it when do you what do they call it Vitor or right yeah what's the english word for that um to be mavater in english (laughs) well we'll we'll get it in there but (laughs) you know to forgive and forget and to move on is is when do you you know, because even asking the question, is that a form of not being mavater? If if a person has a serious monetary dispute, they're not they're, there's a reason why we have monetary law. You don't have to be mavater every time. Is it a wonderful mila on many occasions, a wonderful thing to do? And oftentimes gonna save you actual money, forget about time and agmas nefesh and you know, aggravation and sleepless nights. Yeah, a lot of times it will save you more than you think to just let something go. Uh, people sometimes get caught up in these minor monetary disputes and they get so angry and it breaks relationships and it causes them all sorts of stress. And if they could have just let it go, it would have been so much smoother and they, the loss would have been even less monetary loss, you know, because by the time they finish paying their towing and whatever, and things getting dragged out and towing is a whole different discussion. You should do an episode on that, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for the Jewish people. But a person is entitled to their day in court, meaning a person is entitled to their money if someone's taking unfair advantage of them. I usually do not recommend Bezin as a first step. Um, I'll often tell people if they're two honest, religious people, uh, find a rabbi that you both trust and that you both think is, is an honest person. And if you both agree to follow whatever he says, go together to that rabbi and just have the conversation and see what he says. If that doesn't uh, work out, or they can't agree on anybody, so then I'll uh, recommend going through the Bayesden system. Beautiful. Really, Lewis, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of Kosher Money. We're starting 2024 with a bang. Really, really happy with what took place in 2023. The channel is now over a million subscribers on YouTube. We're, we're working on some new podcasts. Really excited about that, laying the foundation. Stay tuned. Thank you to our friends at Living Smarter Jewish. More and more people are reaching out. A free resource. Get this. If you're not reaching out, what is wrong with you? Reach out. LivingSmarterJewish.org. Free financial resources. They can help you with advisors, guidance. If you have questions, reach out to them. Yes, they're not going to reply within 30 minutes, but 
Stay patient, give them a couple days and they will get back to you, sometimes even sooner. They are incredible, a project of the OU, livingsmarterjewish.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Twillery, Decked Out. Thank you. Thank you to uh, Kola Chabad, doing phenomenal work. There's a businessman out in California who says, I want to pay to sponsor them. It's not coming out of Kol Chabad's pocket. And we're trying to spread the good word, kolchabad.org slash kosher money, twillery.com slash kosher money, and our newest sponsor, the Donors Fund. Sleek app. Love the desktop. I don't know which one I love most. Sometimes you're like, hmm, I love a good app, but their website is phenomenal. Legitimate QuickBooks-like platform for charity giving. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. TheDonorsFund.org slash kosher money. It's .org because they are a 501c3. You can learn more about them on their website. Thank you to our friends at Mishpacha. If you want more on our amazing episodes, visit mishpacha.com or pick up a local magazine at your local provider. Thank you for listening. I always like to end off with one tip. I will tell you this. One of our episodes, we met with a credit card expert, I think it was last year with Jason Steele. And all of a sudden we looked at the stats and one of his, the episode we did with him shot through the roof, thousands of new views and the algorithm. It's hard to know how things work, but more and more people are reaching out to him now, setting it up. Um, he charges, but people are getting a lot out of it. If you're on the wrong credit card, that can literally cost you thousands of dollars a year on lost out savings. I'm not telling you a credit card is for everyone, but he's a great resource can help guide you or your business. So look up Jason Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E. We had a whole episode with him, so you can watch that and probably gain a lot. And that is your tip of the week. Like and subscribe if you haven't. It means a lot to us. If you're listening on audio, take a minute to just leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, whatever Spotify has. Leave a review. It helps us in the rankings in terms of showing this helpful content to more and more people. If you have a guest suggestion, you want to sponsor one of our shows, you can reach out at livinglachaim.com. More bonus content there. Without further ado, I give you the end of this video. Bye-bye. Living Lachaim.